Welcome back to the Break It Down for Brackens podcast. Today's a special day. I know I've had a lot of special days in the last sort of recording, so we're really hitting some great milestones. But today is the 100th podcast, and uh, I'm so happy and flattered that people have come on and had conversations with me on so many different types of topics, whether it's small business, interesting people, people running for office, um, people in the running community. Uh, I want to say thank you to everybody who's come on the podcast. Uh, and we were really bouncing around ideas on what we were going to do. <clears throat> um, and Patty Sherwood and Andrew Ostentowski both had the same idea pretty much at the exact same time on the same day, and that people should interview me. So, Patty, thank you for being on the podcast. And thank you for being the host today. I'm honored. <laughs> I'm grateful. Congratulations. 100 episodes. Did you think that, did you even have that in the back of your mind when you launched this thing? Well, I launched the podcast, um, I would say officially in my mind sometime around June of 2018. <clears throat> but I'm a strategic thinker, very analytical. So I'll start talking about business ideas business concepts, partnerships, projects, sometimes three or four months ahead of time, sometimes three or four years ahead of time. So um, <clears throat> I went through a, a, a program called Leadership Jefferson that's hosted by the Jefferson County Chamber of Commerce. That is a um, kind of an eight or nine month long exposure to many different industries just in Jefferson County, whether it's you learn about education, you learn about local government and EMS and um, the court systems, you know, you spend a whole day with about 25 other colleagues once a month and you learn about like, the education, um, economic development, uh, what else? Agriculture, how big is agriculture for the community? And at the, at the, in 2018, when I was going through that program, I already felt like I, I was confident in the things that I knew about my environment, my community. But I learned so much that I didn't know. So it kind of sparked an interest and a thirst for more information. In 2018, podcasts had became, become very popular. It seemed like everybody had one. So I, <clears throat> I knew that I wanted to learn more about all the industries that I was in. I knew at the time... Because podcasts were so prevalent, there was just a bunch of crap out there. So I thought in my head I just wouldn't share it for anybody. I, was, I wasn't really going to share it. I was going to record them and post them online but not really promote that I'm doing it. And, then I, and also I didn't know how to podcast. I mean literally at all. So Andrew Oskentoski was in my leadership Jefferson class. And when I brought up that I wanted to start a podcast, um, and I'm sorry, so the spirit of the podcast was to put myself in front of more people, be the person who was not scared to ask dumb questions. And when I mean dumb questions, what I mean is usually in conversations at a social event with family, whatever it is, um, or at a job interview, it could be anywhere, people just nod their head and they go along with the flow and the content of a conversation. Nobody wants to stick their neck out and ask the dumb questions. You know, how does interest work? What are the steps to buying a house? Um, 
how does the water get from the Shenandoah River to my faucet, and then where does it go afterwards? You can hear somebody asking quite, but I put myself in a position to ask subject matter experts or interesting people questions that break it down for Brackens. So through that, I can then share those basic information with um, anybody who's interested in listening. And that's what I kind of defined as a graduate project after Leadership Jefferson ended. But because I'm a strategic thinker, I'm like, well, how do I connect with the highest level people within my reach? And I was inspired during Leadership Jefferson to go to Leadership West Virginia. And I said, well, why just keep it Jefferson County? If I can go statewide, I can learn from other people, gain the same sort of experience, and then share what I learn with anybody who's interested in learning. So my first podcast that I did, I picked targets of people that I knew I could have business talk with. Patty, you're one of them. So we did how to buy a house, how to sell a house, the steps. Stephanie Hoddle, who owns a flower shop just outside of town, she was the very first one. And then I brought people in like Nick Zagliffa and just people that I knew kind of from the bros and bras community to kind of cut my teeth on interviewing or just having that kind of casual conversation. But I didn't know how to do editing and it was all audio and I didn't know how to adjust the levels I think I lost the first five to seven official podcasts that were supposed to be. So like officially, you were like number seven, not number three. Um, but going through Leadership West Virginia through 2019 and starting to cut my teeth on how to do the editing, thanks to Andrew Oxendine, he came and just showed me how to use a certain sort of um, editing platform in, in the computer with how you render and um, that's kind of how it was born, and it was launched officially Super Bowl Sunday 2020. And then we did like 12 or 15 podcasts, and COVID hit. I had to pivot my whole game. Um, so I never had aspirations for it hitting 100. I didn't have any sort of targets in my mind. But what I was able to do was I was able to, through reputation in the community, pull together people that I wanted to learn from, I wanted to hear from. I mean, everything from how bail bonds work to how much the magistrates who are running for office can't talk about anything. I mean, thanks for coming on the podcast, but we literally couldn't talk about anything. Um, if, if, if I had aspirations or if I thought it might do something, I thought I would figure out how to do video. So around number 15, we started dabbling in like one camera angle video. So I just, just the cameras on you, Patty. Um, and then I try to do wide shots where the camera's on the whole group, but that added a new, um, what's the word? It added a new technicality to the rendering. So I guess that's a super long answer to, did I think it was going to hit 100? And what it did was the 100 was a surprise. I didn't realize until about two weeks ago that we were creeping up somewhere around, 90, 98. And since then, we've actually recorded seven more, but we're going to make this one the 100. Because I haven't whoop. produced the other ones, right? 
So that, did that answer the question? That's kind of a long answer. Well, it certainly gives us uh, insight into where breaking it down with Bracken started and how it evolved some. And I think we'll certainly uh, address the subject matter expert in this case is going to be you. Okay. So we'll get some more background, but it's interesting that to me, what I already know of you mm -hmm. is that you're a doer and that you get things done and they evolve and you work at things consistently. So that's just some of those pieces that uh, we'll see if we can't get some more insight on from you today. Sure. So um, hopefully you feel like you know yourself pretty well. I've done, I, I've done, I've done, because like I said, I'm an analytical person. And I mean pretty extreme analytical. I've traced back the heritage of how I've come to where I am today so that, one, I'm able to give thanks and appreciate the steps that I took in life that have brought me to a position that I'm comfortable with in my life. So with whether it's success or accomplishment, I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at and I aspire for only a little more at a time. So, yeah, I can, I can answer questions like that. Well, let's give people some insight that maybe they don't have, even if they interact with you on a regular basis sure. through many of your uh, ventures. But I would like to ask you to think back. Can you remember when you were 10 years old? Yes. So fifth or sixth grade, something like that. Mm-hmm. Tell us who Kevin Brackens was then. Back then, I'd say the memories that are the sharpest in my mind are um, living in Arlington, Virginia. And I was one of the older kids on our street. We had one, two, three, four, maybe five to seven boys and girls, maybe even nine, who lived on our street. And I was traditionally the biggest until you jumped into much bigger than me or much older than me. Like if I was 10, they were, the older kids were probably 16 or 17, but then there was like all the way down to like seven. So it was 10 to 10 to five was the age range. And so I do remember back then and that, um, being the older one meant I was kind of more influential in how we played on the street, whether we were racing big wheels or skateboards down the hill. Whether we, we knew where the big hill was that was too scary to skateboard down, you know, we had to find that who was going to make the milestone of riding down it first, you know. And then we had bike races and wrestling matches, and we had a basketball court at my house, and the house was really close to each other there. So everybody would come out, and, and we created our own games of basketball and our own rules and full contact kind of thing. So it was fun. It was full contact because I was the biggest, so naturally... Did you dominate in the game playing arena? I tried to, yeah. Yeah, but sometimes they would gain up, gang up in mass and take me down. Yeah. But my sisters... So team building back then even. Well, looking back, I mean, I've taken like the Myers-Briggs personality test as it pertains to leadership. And I've taken Clifton Strengths and a few other sort of um, analysis of personality. And 
through what I've learned through those, I was able kind of to trace back, not so far to 10 years old, but I can genuinely trace it back to when I was 12. That's only in 13 and 14. There's only a little bit of difference between 10 and 12. But I can trace it all the way back to when my mother, as nerdy as this sounds, my mother sent me to leadership camp at Marymount University, which was like six or seven weeks long, and a bus would pick you up. It felt a lot like school, but not as bad as school because a school bus would pick you up. I met kids from outside outside of my school, you know, so I don't remember what we did in camp, but I know it was called leadership camp, and I went to it over the years of 12 and 13, those summers. Or, yeah, it was 12 or 13. It was during a span of summertime then that I went to those camps. Would you say that had an impact on you? I can't identify how, but I know that was the first genuine exposure to organized leadership when it came to leading projects or, again, I can't totally remember, but if it was called leadership camp, I assume we worked on things like that. But it was a memorable event. Yes. And I, I, that, that is the farthest I would trace back the influence in being a leader or a mentor all the way back to there. Yeah. So, and I was going to ask you, uh, we talked about you as a 10-year-old. So I want to get into the next decade. So 11 to 20. And you had this leadership training in those young teen years. What's another thing that would have impacted you by the time you were 20? That you just, you first know, thing that comes to mind. Like therapy wise, I haven't really pushed back into why I am who I became, but just by brainstorming the years from 11 to 20, super awkward, like anybody would be. Um, but the Myers-Briggs leadership personality assessment identified me as primarily a cultural leader. I wasn't totally sure what that was until I finished up with Leadership West Virginia. But what it means is that I'm not a front desk manager. I'm not a general manager over managers. I'm not even the regional manager. More than likely, I'm an administrator that writes the content for the entire company to um, to follow guidelines, sort of like handbook sort of stuff. But I come up with the idea. I was actually, as I know, this is getting away from the eleven to twenty. But I was actually telling to somebody like talking about being a team player. For me, my perspective, based on how I've embraced what I've learned through the assessments, is that I'm not a team player, and I'm not the captain on a team. And I'm, I'm also not the coach. Additionally, I'm not the, the, the team manager, you know, because like, there's a manager and a coach, like a business manager for a team. And I'm not even the company. I'm not even the, the team owner. I'm the guy that knows the team owner that encouraged them to maybe buy a team. That's the kind of team player I am. I'm, and I, and I, I really learned to embrace that position. And if I was looking for flashes of sort of cultural or idealistic moves between 11 and 20, I would say when I was on the track team in high school, because like junior high, awkward, you know, looking at girls, 
not wanting to do homework. Video games were pretty hot in those, you know, 1985 to, to 90, you know, so that was kind of breaking in. So that, that pretty much brought my head back into t- watching TV. Um, so really getting out of playing with the kids in the neighborhood, going to high school, it was all just super awkward. But I do remember being on the track team, ending up being a, a captain, not knowing what a captain's job really was. But um, there were flashes of it, but nothing that was truly engaged, I'd say, until I was 21 when I joined the military. Did you have a job before that? Yeah, dead end stuff. I was more into, you know, snowboarding and going to the beach and being a beach bum and What was your first job? First job was when I was 14. I was a dishwasher at a restaurant in Maine. Just washing dishes. You know, $4.25 an hour. Yeah, back in. That was pretty good. What did you like about that job? That it gave me a little bit of money, and I could take that money to, like, buy candy or go watch a movie. You know, things were cheaper back then. And, then, you know, I was still the age when my parents bought my clothes and that kind of thing. So, yeah. So let's move on to the next decade of Kevin. And you mentioned you joined the military at 21? Yeah, 1997. What made you do that? Life was – I was – I chased a girl down to uh, Florida, you know fell in love and I was making all the right moves. I think I had about 700 bucks in my pocket and a car that was paid off that I bought from my friend and I threw like three or four bags and I literally moved to Florida. Rent was $420 a month so somehow I had, oh I stayed with my uncle and then I um, got a couple jobs and made a little bit of enough money to get a place and then um, me and the girl broke up inevitably because that's what happens when you move for a girl sometimes. And uh, my path was I wasn't using drugs, but I was around a lot of people that were using drugs in a very uh, glitzy um, sort of industry. And I knew I wasn't going to – I wasn't going down – I, I, it was possible I wasn't going to go down a good path. And – I mean, it. my car had just been stolen, I believe, or something like that happened, and the recruiting station was literally two blocks down the road, and it was kind of a, a last-ditch effort, and I was like, you know what, let me go see what the Navy's doing, because that was the recruiter. The Navy and the Marines were in one room, and I met with them. Next day, went and took that test, got really good scores. They got a little too fired up to get me signed up. They, got, they, were, they were too eager. Um, so I called my mom and she sent me a plane ticket to fly home. And then I went and talked to an army recruiter. I saw that picture of the guy with like the knife in his teeth coming out with the mud all over him and the machine gun. I'm like, I want to be that guy. So it, joining the army was a position of let's get as squared away as possible, um, with some discipline and let's go become a commando. But that didn't work out the way I thought it would. Cause it's really hard to be a commando and I was really soft. So a lot of self-discovery there. Mm -hmm. Um, For the listeners that don't know, what did you do when you were in the Army? Sure. So I went to basic training in uh, February of 1997, and I graduated from that in uh, June of 1997 uh, after doing uh, infantry basic school and then infantry advanced courses, which trains you to be, you know, an infantry soldier. 
Um, and then I went to airborne school to become airborne infantry, which means 82nd Airborne or wherever they want to ship you after that. On week three, though, there's a recruiting unit there that comes into each platoon or company that's uh, in training. And they say, give us everybody who's 5'10 or taller and of a certain weight category. Um, and what they were doing, they were sizing men up for a position with the old guard, which is a ceremonial unit that's at, it's a full-time active duty ceremony unit that's at Arlington National Cemetery. So I was, um, you had to fill out some background paperwork additionally compared to just getting in the army to make sure you had a clean record. You had to be a certain physical fitness level. And back then I was 135 pounds. I was just all skinny and tall. So that worked for them. And then, um. Uh, they don't tell you you've been accepted until graduation, which is a nightmare because you're looking at like 16 weeks, 17 weeks of thinking you're going to go airborne school. And I, at the time I had a ranger contract. No, I was all ambitious, man. But I'm going to tell you right now, basic training is hard enough. What they were going to do at ranger battalion was going to be way harder. And I was already, I guess, quote unquote, too mature for my environment. And I was looking to fight back. So we, I mean, to be honest, we, me and some colleagues in basic broke into the drill sergeant's office when they were off for the weekend to get the folders that had our orders in there. So we could actually know and have peace of mind. And I just accepted to the old guard. So they, um, they shipped me up to uh, Fort Myer, which they didn't realize, or they didn't pay attention, but that's my hometown being from Arlington, Virginia. Now I'm stationed in the army active duty in my hometown, which really is like a dream come true. It's like having a job at home. A lot of structure. You got to stick with what you got. You got to follow the rules and all that sort of stuff. And I was put into a um, Bravo company, uh, which is a rotation company. And every three weeks we do between five and eight funerals per day. And we do marching missions and retirement ceremonies. And it's a unit that is an extreme, extremely high honor to pay tribute to soldiers that have been killed in action or who have retired from the military and were going to be laid to rest at Arlington Cemetery. My position was on the firing party, which is the group of seven or eight men that go out and do the uh, 21 gun salute. So there's seven guys with rifles and one uh, NCO commander that calls the ready aim fire. Um, and it was genuinely an exceptional honor. Additionally, it was a, it was a fraternity. So I was in a fraternity that didn't have to go to college stationed at home with like firearms and outdoors activities. It was really, uh, I can say it now, it was really a great experience. But that's also the same sort of language you use when you see, when you drank a few beers and you're at the bar and you got a buzz and you see a sexy ex-spouse or girlfriend, you're like, oh, hey, how you been? Long time no see, you look really good too. And you only remember the good parts of their crazy. You know, so that's, that's how I equate. I think back on it fondly cause it's been 20 years, but the, uh, while I was in and you're 22, you think, you know, what direction your life needs to go. You don't want to follow the structure. You don't want to follow the rules. So it was, it was a real, um, challenge for processing who I was and being under that level of control for four years. Is that why you didn't stay in? Well, I, there were opportunities that came to me while in the O Guard because you, you have the ability to get a higher clearance. 
Um, there are certain guys in our unit that were able to march on the White House lawn. They had whatever PSD means. It was a certain kind of clearance. There. You could do ceremonial units out there. But that would launch you into opportunities to, to work once you got out in jobs with clearances. And when you're in your mid-20s, you don't know anything. The Internet was junk back then. It wasn't that high speed, right? It, you couldn't research like you can today. Um, I got duped a few times while I was in there by my leadership. And Delta Force was recruiting, I'd say, in my third year of four. And... Our unit was a little shorthanded, which didn't mean a lot to me, but Delta Force was recruiting. You went to a briefing and you learned about what they do. Then you get to go on the next day to take a test, and then you get to go the next day to do like a physical and some physical fitness training to determine that you have the right sort of stamina to get through what training they secretly do because it's like a secret commando force. But it's a force that knows how to think outside the box, knows how to get missions done based on parameters, but using the tools that they have. And I think that would have been a really good job for me. Um, I went back and my commander was like, what was that meeting about? And I said, that's a Delta Force recruitment meeting. That was incredible. And I think I want to, I want to go check it out. And they got back and he said, sorry, Brackens, we're too, we're too shorthanded. So maybe next year you can try out with them. But right now it's not, it's not going to work out for us. Turns out they're not supposed to hold you back like that. They're supposed to give you the opportunities to move forward. Had I gone there and had I been successful, and it's hard to say if I would have been, that would have really changed my life while I was in the Army. And that would have included a, a reenlistment for probably six to ten years at least after that. Additionally, when you're within three months of getting out, you go and you talk to a retention officer and they, they talk about what opportunities are there for you. And um, they gave me a whole list of jobs that were kind of available. And one of them was counterintelligence. And um, I wanted to explore what that was i was the only the only job i was actually interested in at all was what counterintelligence i didn't know what it was but i wanted to learn more and uh, the recruiter was you know they get bonuses or bonus they get they get pats on the back the more they recruit for what they need to fill for the needs of the army which at that time was infantry at fort drum they're like okay look we'll put you in pldc we'll make you a sergeant we'll get you for six years we'll give you a seven thousand dollar reenlistment bonus blah 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 and i was like no 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 i have the gi bill fully ready if I want to get out and go to college. But um, I'm interested in counter intel. And they were like, oh, you probably you probably won't get it. You know, you've been in too much trouble and this and that. And they kept steering me back to it. I said, you know what? Hands off, man. I got three months of terminal leave. I'm going to go sit on the beach for three months. Then I'm looking to get into college. Yeah, I'm going to do all these things. And that was in June of 2001. So had they let me go into counter intel, I would have been six months into training. Um. It's hard to say what that path would have taken, but September 11 happened, which would have been six months into my training, which would, means I would have been fast-tracked forward to eventually go to the, the Gulf War. And um, that would have changed my life also. But just due to the parameters of how recruitment was and opportunities that were either taken or given to me, I decided to get out, become a bartender, and explore going to college. Mm -hmm. So what happened next? So hit your mic real quick. Uh, tap the, uh, I'm, I lost your, your audio for a second there. Say something. Can you hear me? No, so wiggle that wire. Oh, not the wire. Yeah, that's the same thing that happened to me. Okay, sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you now. I think you're good. Just careful with your leg. Um, 
Because if he wiggles it too much, it might. That's how janky my podcast is, people. 100. Anyhow, so I um, I was interested in adventure, and I wanted to do um, – I missed the training of the military. I wanted to get into long-distance running, mountain biking, anything endurance sports I could. And a sport that was emerging in the U.S. at the time was called adventure racing. And it's a 24 to – 100 hour long races where you race all day all night with navigation land nav like in the military carrying your pack and all your food and kit with you like the military no weapon i thought that was pretty delightful such so as you in a pack riding a bike hiking through the woods swimming um challenge after challenge real adventure and with the intention of getting it done as quickly as possible i found a you know i found a college in garrett maryland called garrett college and um they had a sports and recreation I'm sorry, an adventure sports institute where you could learn to become a, you know, a snowboard instructor, a ski instructor, mountain bike tech, a rock climbing guide, whitewater rafting skills and guides, search and rescues, all these different tracks that certified you at an entry level to get jobs anywhere in the world using those disciplines. Well, I wanted to use it to hone my skills to be a better racer. Went there for one year, really capitalized on that with the GI Bill. Additionally, I, I applied for a lot of grants, so I found ways to, to bankroll myself through it. Um, and this was, I would say, 2002. So I bartended for about a year, a year and a half before making the, the university move. And then me and my girlfriend at the time decided to get engaged. She wanted to go back to, she wanted to go to grad school in Philly. So we moved to Philly and that's where I finished my, um, my four-year degree. And then additional, I went to St. Joe's with a psychology major, got my four-year degree in three years. About a year and a half later, I went to Temple University for uh, graduate studies in sports and recreation administration, which is not sports and recreation management. It's like kind of the next level up. Um, and that's the very short part of that story. Yeah. And about how old were you then when you finished? I turned 30, I'd say, in my senior year of undergrad. So I was probably 32 when I finished I didn't finish grad school. They wanted me to do an internship or a, uh, a graduate project. And it was, it was a very competitive and big program. Not big, but an elite program, exclusive program at Temple University. They only let in like six to nine students a year for that. Um, I, I had to take facilities and I had to do like an internship. But the, the rules of the internship really, really simply to answer phones, help with scheduling. I was already thirty-two-year-old veteran. I'd already landed a job in Manhattan that was managing multiple facilities for what I just studied. I thought it made more sense just to not finish my graduate degree and go get my career started. And I was already of the mindset that people weren't going to be measuring me on having a degree or not. I already considered myself um, high enough in the experience food chain so you're in your 30s mm -hmm. so tell us about the launch of your career sports and recreation um in the year 2007 or 2007 8 and 9 had me living in new jersey commuting to manhattan or to philadelphia i created outdoor recreation programs and uh, ropes courses, sort of like team building systems and um, fitness programming for groups or intramural teams, not like the collegiate teams, but the 
students that aren't athletes that still want to play soccer and they had a competitive med intramural team, they could engage with me and I would train them in group. It was more of a boot camp sort of setting, which I learned from the military. And I was very good at implementing. I had that at St. Joseph's University, University of the Sciences, Drexel University. I was looking at University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I started to look at Temple to kind of bring my systems there. But I was starting to overwhelm myself, especially with school. Um, and eventually, I was absorbed into a management company to run high-level amenities like pools, uh, recreation centers, gyms concierge services, limo services for very, very high-end buildings in Manhattan. And then through excelling at that, I was offered more than, more than just one facility. And then eventually I was managing five, five to seven of them, their staff, basically running it as my own business, even though it, the management company was being paid and they're paying me. Um, that happened until I was about 36. 35, no, 34. Yeah, and then um, I, I didn't care for Manhattan, so we lived just outside Manhattan in Jersey City, my girlfriend and I at the time, and she had a good career in finance, and I said, you know, I'm pretty juiced in in the D.C. area, lots and lots of friends. We don't have any friends here, really. It's hard to socialize, hard to meet anybody. I said, if we go back down there, maybe together we can do this, and she ended up getting a very good clearance and she ended up getting an entry-level job with the Navy because of her high clearance. And we could have really pivoted and come down together and maybe started a family. I don't know, whatever the math would have put together there because we're still quite young. Um, but she wasn't interested in moving and we just split ways. And that was, I want to say that was 2008 and the economy was kind of crap. And I remember her saying, I said, well, I'm going down there to do some interviews and to look for jobs. And I, I think I'm going to make a move like that. And she was like, okay, well, good luck with that. I mean, nobody's getting jobs. The economy's crushed. And I got a job, first shot. I got a job at Gold's Gym International um, as a fitness manager for them in one of their higher end facilities. And um, due to mentorship there, I was able to really excel for about a year, year and a half. Then that company I was working for in Manhattan opened up opportunities in the DC area. So I came on with them as an entire region business development manager. So helping their higher up find the facilities we wanted to manage in the D.C. area. But inevitably, I'm never really good at being somebody's employee because of all the things I've said so far. Um, I'm not very manageable. And um, I'm a producer, though. I'm able to show results, but the CEO of the company I was working for kind of put together a witch hunt because she wanted me to do things that were outside my scope understanding. So if I'm able to train trainers and train people that sell and I have the revenue and the money's coming in, I was in a, a pipeline of what I'm good at. She kept trying to get me to start say, okay, with the facility, let's go ahead and have a wine tasting also. And I was like, I don't, I don't even know how to find the people to do that. I don't know how to do that. They're like, well, let's also have like a cupcake because cupcakes were getting popular. And let's have a cupcake party. And I was like, this is this is not what I want to do. And she didn't like my pushback, so she started pushing on me. And um, I'd say that was right around age 36, 37. So I um, I remember I told my father, I said, hey, uh, this, this CEO's coming at me pretty hard. And he said, well, son, have you ever considered coming down here? Because he lived in Southern Virginia. 
here because they're coming down here and taking over the uh, the family painting business. I said, well, Dad, I've always considered it, but I didn't know if that was an eye. I didn't think it was an option. He's like, well, I think it's something we should talk about. So within a week or so, I drove down and we had like a 24-hour conference on how it would be and what would happen and that sort of stuff. And I came back and Jenny and I were engaged at the time. And, you know, she supported the idea of me going down there, but it required me to live there for about a year to do, you know, an intensive ride-alongs with my father as I learned the ropes of how he ran his business. Uh, so that pushes us right to about 40. Let's pause there. Yeah. Before we get past 40. Yeah. Because our listeners here, many, most... Um, and if they don't already, they will want to know Jenny. Uh -huh. So how did you meet her? Jenny was an entity in my army years. She dated a buddy of mine named Pete. And I was attracted to her back then. I saw her, you know, because Pete lived in the barracks at the time when she started to come around. And I didn't live in the barracks, but I was there. And I was like, oh, that's a pretty girl right there. How about that? And then um, they got engaged and they got married. I crashed their wedding with a date that I had. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't invited. But my all, my all my buddies were like in the wedding party. And I knew there was going to be like an after party, like a reception. And I was like, why not go to that? That's not like a good pregame for the weekend. Uh, and it's funny, I'm in the pictures, I have pictures of their wedding, and I'm in the video, it's pretty hilarious, uh, and then I went on about my life, she went on, her and Pete went on their life, and they moved to New York, and then years later I heard from Pete that they had split up, kind of heard how it all went down from him, and then a few years later, she popped up on Facebook and was recommended to be a friend of mine. So I sent her a message and uh, asked her on a date. And then, um, you know, I was pretty aggressive about dating her. And then within two years, we got engaged and then we got married. So before you got married, you were engaged. You went to Southern West Virginia to work with your dad to learn the painting business. Mm-hmm. By then, did you understand that you were an entrepreneur or, or had, had you, I know you talked about kind of what wasn't working for you in the regular work world. Do you have a, a point where you realized why? I forgot something. I forgot something. So in high school, we had an economics class senior year, senior year. And that's when I realized I was an entrepreneur. In that class, we had to come up with a business idea, develop a product, sell stock in the idea, produce the product, sell the product, make the money, pay back dividends to investors, give the money to charity. I don't know why this switch turned on in my head but our homework was to sell the stock a dollar a share, $5 a share. I can't remember what it was at that time. 
I was mowing lawns and working in a landscaping distribution company like Meadows Farm. So I had a little bit of money in my pocket, but not a lot. And I, I forgot to do my homework because I was that kid. So I just bought my own stock. And then other students hadn't done their homework, so I bought their stock also. So I became a stockholder. And um, we went to produce the product, which was a large water bottle full of Jolly Ranchers. And we got permission because back then you couldn't have candy in school. I think you can now. Back then you couldn't. So as long as you're eating Jolly Ranchers that came out of a school water bottle that we sold for five bucks, good to go. So I had quite a bit of stock in the company, but you know I had one of the majority shareholders because I bought like four people's stocks for like a total of like 80 bucks. Now, the water bottles were being sold for let's say $5 and that green-lighted students to eat candy. So it was, it was the rule. So there was demand. Then our homework was to get the water bottles, get the Jolly Ranchers, fill them, sell the, sell the water bottles. So everybody had to sell five water bottles at five bucks a piece, bring the 25 bucks back to the teacher and we put it all together. Again, I didn't do my homework. I had these four water bottles or five water bottles sitting in the bottom of my locker. But I also knew eight or nine other people had that as well. So again, because I had a weekend job, I paid for my own water bottles. They were going, they were selling so fast and that, but I, I bought up like four or five other people's water bottles for another hundred dollars and I threw them all in my locker until demand was gone. So people had finished, they'd gotten all their water bottles, they'd eaten all their Jolly Ranchers. There was still a demand for them. So then I was able to double the price on the candy you were allowed to eat. And it, it, that kept going down the road, and then we ended up in the stockholders meeting, and then I had to be lectured by this nun about how it's inappropriate for me to have this many voting shares for a company that's for charity and all this stuff. But, but I got an A because I had the most entrepreneurial spirit, and I worked the systems to my favor back then when I was 17. So that's where the entrepreneurial spirit originally began, but I didn't have a way to apply myself. So fast forward to 40-ish. Yes. And now you have an opportunity to, to work to take care of my yourself. dad's company. Yeah, tell us about that. What my father and I did not calculate was: is he a good teacher? Do we have the communication skills and the patience and bandwidth to understand uh, the position that we're both coming from? I'm going to say because he's so old school, he had the dominant lack of interest in my more forward-thinking ideas. Him having been in business for 33 years, he had his things his way. I saw futures my way. I learned a lot of what to do. I learned what not to do. And I learned the differences in a 33-year-old business versus a three-year-old business. Um, so I spent a whole year with him, and we came to terms in early spring of the year. I can't think of what – I want to say it was 12. Maybe it was 14. No, it was 20 – it was 2011. It was 2011 because it was the, we got married in the middle of that year. Spent spent the first half of our year apart. Uh, I was home for weekends, but it was just it was tough. So uh, my father and I didn't necessarily get along on all the topics. So he, with his encouragement, I moved back up here with Jenny and I bought a three thousand dollar van. And Dad gave me a twenty four foot ladder and a six foot ladder, 
and says, go get it. Go get it done. Call me if you need anything. Yeah. So with his blessing, I came up and I told all my high school friends, hey, I've started a business. I told everybody in Huntfield where I lived, hey, I've got a business. And from the very first moment, we started getting jobs, learning my way around how to price and how to produce. I was the only painter. Then I got a helper. Um, the key, the key to that success was Jenny had a good income and we were living somewhat within our means. So I didn't have to, how do I put it? Um, freak out if there wasn't enough money and there was always enough money and I never spent my money. If that makes sense. I didn't like go out and buy a Camaro in my sixth month because I had money in my pocket. We kept, I kept money because I was scared all the time that, that jobs would, that would, would dry up. Um, and then learning about the duplication of efforts, which is, means hiring a painter who might be nearly as good as I am or, or maybe less or whatever. If I can double my efforts at 100%, that'd be incredible. But if a guy's only 60% as good as me, it's still 160% of production happening. Um, and that's what really whet my appetite. Uh, for growing. Mm -hmm. And how many crews do you have now? I can call on four crews, uh, three of which are two are, I'm sorry. One is I, I call in muscle and that's the guy that I actually started my company with. He was the first manager that I hired and put him in charge of hiring the crew. And I really built my business on their back. He's still with me, but he's basically on his own. Um, he works out of Richmond and Woodbridge, Virginia. But when I have big projects, I can call on him, whether it's here locally in Jefferson County, West Virginia, or if we're going to Richmond or we've been to Florida, we've been to Chicago, Cincinnati, you know, Philly, Jersey. So I take him on the big travel trips because he's got a really reliable staff. And I helped him build and run his business. And then I have two other crews, one of which is three-quarter time, one is full-time, and then I have the primary uh, W-2 crew, which is three guys. So if I needed the most muscle possible, I'd probably, probably jump up 11 people, Yeah, four crews. So after having been someone that was not manageable, mm -hmm. how do you find the experience of being a manager? Well, again, to, to lean back on the fact that I see myself as a cultural leader, I hire I, I, hiring is so hard, but the people that I have on board have a maturity that I can coach them into being the leader I need them to be. So I don't want to be the leader. I, I create an environment where people can engage their leadership style to run the crews to produce a Bracken's painting. So I coach. It's weird to say that, but I, I coach, I coach my staff. I rarely manage. So. I just, I don't know how to explain that. And I've always wondered how a coach knows that they're a coach. Now, we have friends that are business coaches or consultants or whatever. And I'm like, how do you have the balls to say that you know the stuff? Like, how is that even, how is that even a thing? Because I don't think I have imposter syndrome, but I don't think I ever know enough to officially coach somebody. But I, I genuinely, genuinely coach the leadership team inside my company so that they not only have autonomy, but they feel empowered to run it the way they want to. And if they learn lessons a certain way, I help them adapt if, they, if they're interested. Otherwise, um, I let them run the company. Ugh. But I mean, I, have, I still have control over 
pretty much everything. Is that important to you to have the control? Um, it's something that I learned from my father. Um, and he was trained back in the 60s and 70s on how to manage, which is a different management style than today. Um, I'm able to let it go pretty easily now that I have men that are able to take the lead. I texted a guy on the way here saying, hey, man, I'm going to be in podcast from 8 a.m. until 1 p.m. I, I'm hoping you have the thing handled. If it's not, call me two times in a row. I'll pause what I'm doing to help you. But he's currently managing two crews, and they're painting a doctor's office. Killer. And he's like, I got it, man. We're all good. Because they have the company credit card. They know what paint to get. They're not a bunch of knuckleheads. They're really squared away guys. So I'm able to – I don't have to have all the control. And that's where we're at. Do you like having your own company? I know that it can't be any other way. I probably don't even do well with partners. When Bros and Bras was a nonprofit, that was the largest business mistake I've ever made in my life uh, conceptually. Uh, I didn't realize how a board of directors controls an executive director. And I feel really bad for them because I'm not controllable. I'm not a wild card, but I certainly don't want to ask permission for anything. And Bros and Bras was my uh, was kind of my baby, the community I wanted to build. And I thought <clears throat> at the time, I'd say 2015, 2016, or maybe it was 2018, uh, maybe it was 2017 when we went nonprofit. And I thought that was the way to go because others around me had nonprofits. I thought that's how you got funding to do bigger and better things. And um, my board development skills need a lot of work, including recruitment. I brought the smartest and brightest minds of people that I knew were near me together. And um, hmm. it it was difficult for me to lead them. So since you brought up Rose and Bras, let me, uh, I want to talk more about that, but let me ask you about your uh, relationship with fitness. So you said you were on the track team when you were young? Yes. Were you doing that for physical outlet, for fitness, like where? Yeah. My mom wasn't too big on promoting high school sports. I had two little sisters also, and we traveled a lot because I grew up in an airline family. I didn't know about high school football, like zero. And I was the oldest, so I'm the one cutting the way for everybody going into high school. I wasn't a bad kid, but I probably had whatever challenges going into high school that were more important to focus on, most likely by my mom, than sports. So we had PE in freshman year. And, okay, we got to run a mile. And I ran like a six-minute mile. And then the PE coach was like, hey, track coach, come look at this dude. He ran a 6.03 mile with no training. <clears throat> and my mom put me in soccer when I was young also and like grade school basketball. So I had like some endurance. I was super small. So I was a fast runner. They got me to join the track team. I joined it. I wasn't very good. Then I did get good. Then I got really good. Then I became I became quite successful in my events. And then, what, three years later, I joined the Army, and I still had the same engine. And um, 
like I got pulled out of basic to go run on the base running team. And I was like, what? I mean, it was like, and then I went back. They, it was like out of prison. Hey, go hang out with all these people who are on a track meet. And you think you're totally free. They're like, get right back in the cattle truck. Go back to basic training. But I was on that base running team and I won races. And the, the colonel was so, so super happy. I didn't know what I was doing because I was coming out of basic. Then the airborne school put me on their racing team for three weeks. And they had some big field event that was exciting. Okay, great. Then I was on the running team for Fort Myers because I was small. And then I was in the Army 10-miler team. And I mean, like, for the perspective of running, there's, like, runners, then there's really fast runners, then there's, like, elite runners. I was never elite, but my first time running the Army 10-miler in 1997, October, I remember at the time my girlfriend was, well, I was, I was uptight before the race, and she was there to cheer me on or whatever, and... She's like, why are you such a, why are you being an a-hole? I said, I'm focusing. I'm trying to get ready for this race. She's like, it's a huge race. It's not like you're going to win. And I was like, that's not the point. Leave me alone. I'll see you at the end. And I ran that with no formal training at this point. Like there wasn't like a coach. My first two miles were under five minute miles. And I ran the whole army 10 miler, I think a, a 54 or 57 minutes. That's very, very fast. And then in the following years, I became a little bit slower and a little bit slower as my, my body changed and I got heavier or whatever the case was. But running continued there through the Army. And then a year or two after the Army, I still had that. I still was missing that endorphin fix that I wanted from running. And that's how I got into the ultra-endurance stuff in the multidiscipline. And is that is that what feeds you, that endorphin kick? I really, I really don't know, you know, at this point, because I've retired from all the big races that, that put a lot of duress on my body. The training for a 48 hour long race is, is daunting in the months prior, the amount of time you put and, and effort you put in with your body. And then retiring from the big races, I then started to focus on little races. And back when I was developing those athletic and outdoor training programs for the universities, for their intramural programming. I started to see that my personality was to, I was able to build entire platoons of strangers, bring them together, have them bond together in physical fitness three days a week. They became friends without being friends before. And they're friends to this day, just based on all the push-ups I made them do or squats or carrying boats over their heads or canoe trips or whatever it was. And bros and bras version one happened, I'd say in 2000 and for 2005 in Philadelphia. And then Bros and Bras version two started in Manhattan, which had about 15 to 20 participants also. But Bros and Bras version three was in the DC area and it was all focused on high level performance, ultra endurance, um, and really finding out who you were, high level performance. But I wasn't able to recruit or be paid the amount of money I wanted for the value of the programming. So I decided as the bros and bras concept was developed, that I go to the absolute the opposite direction. Let's say free middle and back of the pack. Let's just take it, take a whack at this and see how we can pull together a, a community and see what happens with it. So that was reiteration four. Yeah. 
and that was here? It wasn't called Bros and Bras before. Before the Bros and Bras title, it was called Gut Check. Okay. Because it was really hard and terrible. And we actually had some Gut Check events out here in Jefferson County as that program wrapped up. So where did Bros and Bras come from? Well, BRO stands for the Brackens Racing Organization, and BRO stands for the Brackens Racing Association. And um, Actually, Sean Leonard, who is a, a CrossFit instructor, we, he was one of my painter helpers, and we were talking on our way to a job in Fredericksburg. I said, I want to start this like running group. I want to have like sponsors. I want to get like logos on shirts, and I want to be like a sponsored running team by Brackens Painting, but I'm not sure what we'd call it. And I said, yeah, CrossFit name's kind of cool, but I don't know. And he said um, – I said, it'd be like the Brackens Racing Organization. And Sean's like, bro. I was like, wow, that's cool. What about the ladies? And then somebody else in the vehicle, I think his name is Ducey. Ducey said, bra, Brackens Racing Association. And that's really where the name Bros and Bras came from. Um, that, 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 that is the cons. That, that is the found. That's how it came. It was just knuckleheads going to paint a building in Fredericksburg, Virginia, talking about what we could call a running group. A running team, and then originally it was for Jenny and her workout guru friends that were just so ramped up. And I was gonna, I was looking for some advertising write-off, and I was gonna create like a a racing trailer and their gear, and they could do weightlifting comp, whatever they wanted to. But Jenny didn't like the vision that I fully had for it. She didn't want the pressure of what we were gonna do. So I said, fine, let's make it for me, and I'll, we'll figure this out. And that's where Bros and Bras somehow. I don't. I can't. I can't remember now because we're like in year eight. It um, that's how it rolled. It, it it became an enormous community of wonderful people. We just had a we just had a wedding, that it appears. I mean the the minister or the the the, the official that administered the wedding. What's that called? Officiant. Yeah, the officiant is a bro. The bride is a bra, and the bro, the husband, the the groom is a bro. And I was like, That's, how about that? That's amazing. Um, we haven't had our first funeral yet, but we've now had our first marriage. We had a three three or four divorces. But, you know, in the the family as big as we are, at our peak, we had over 1,300 people. And right now we're probably hovering around 100, 110 active members if you really dice it down over the course of a month in, in the spring. Yeah. So I think a lot of people – would associate bros and bras with Kevin Brackens. But tell us, where does the beard come in? Oh, well, the beard always, it comes down to Jenny. It's Jenny Brackens, basically. So I had a goatee when I met her. Then I shaved it. Totally clean shaven. She was okay with who I, I was with both of those. Then I had long hair, like flowing hair kind of. And then I shaved my head. I changed my appearance quite often back then. Um, then I had a goatee that needed to be trimmed and I messed up. That brought in the mustache era. Did you know me during the mustache era? You would know. Yeah, you you would know because it was enormous. It was it was basically this. It was it was huge. It was kind of like Mario Brothers. It was kind of like um like a push broom or a caterpillar. It was so big. Jenny absolutely hated it and complained about it. And 
I found it fascinating the looks I'd get from people that I realized was because of the mustache. Um, I shaved my head, had a mustache, then I had the mustache, and I grew my chops in real big. That's my current Facebook picture, which is just really high-level creepy. But I've been married, so it's like, let's be creepy. You can be creepy if you're married. Um, then at some point, I started growing the beard in. And the mustache was still big, and I wasn't trimming it. And the beard started to grow in smaller. And then they were basically two different lengths, but growing in. It looked really good. And this is before hipsters were hipsters. Like, I was just growing a beard. Um, Jenny said it was too scratchy. It started to get itchy. But I said, I'm going to let this go. And she said, I hate it. I hate the beard. I hate the beard. I hate the beard. And then just like that, she loved the beard. So it came down to how do you trim a beard? How do you make it look right and clean? Because it got a little bit bushy and scraggly. And I ended up going to um, Errol from Sharp as an Errol Barbershop and Barber Academy. He was my first uh, beard stylist. And his first time cutting it was uh, 90 minutes. It took 90 minutes to cut my beard. Because he was very detailled, and he said he was made him nervous originally because it was huge. And then, um, then I found other stylists, and the beard has become really a part of um, my appearance permanently. Okay, so that was my going to be my next question. So you yeah. foresee no end to the beard? Well, Patty, you are the only person rooting for no beard. You're the only person who's ever mentioned anything about it ever. So people either say whether it's painting or bros or whatever entity I'm involved in, someone refers me and they say, Hey, yeah, call bro or call, call Brackens. Brackens who, what, what's, I don't know his first name. He's, he's the bro from bros and bros. I don't know what that is. It's the guy with the beard. Oh, that guy. It was always, Oh, that guy, the guy with the beard. Yeah, because my beard should be different than others because most guys grow beards. They'll trim beards. They'll go to a barber to have their beard cut. It's not always done. If you go to an actual stylist, then you have a beard that stands out significantly versus a beard that's just trimmed. And that could be another podcast, how you, you style a beard versus trim a beard. I think that's a perfect podcast. Yeah. But before uh, we wrap up this one. Okay. So um, we kind of are learning, breaking down Brackens himself and we've learned different things about you through your lifetime thus far. But you made a comment to me earlier that um, you're, you didn't say it this way, but you're looking forward to 50. And yeah. you said that you have some things that you want to accomplish before sure, then. Sure, sure, sure. Can you so share some of those? I'm with 47. Us? If somebody says, How old are you? Or if I need to make an age reference, I say, I'm almost 50. And the reason is at around 30, around, around 40, 43 and 44, you're still kind of coasting, but you're in your 40s and you know it. When you hit 45, there's this weird, for me, it was a weird sort of sensation of, oh man, I can now remember when my uncles had their 50th birthday. I remember when my dad had his 50th birthday. And that seemed wicked old when I was growing up. So now... I'm at the age where you perceive people as ancient when you're younger. Oh my God, he's 47 years old, just old and busted, right? Um, I was listening to some podcasts and I was inspired by uh, this one guy and he could be not credible at all, but he said something that triggered me and it could totally be wrong. But listen, people, if you want to take this seriously, take it seriously too. For men, 
the prime physic the last prime physical fitness body is um when you turn 50 after you turn 50 there's no science that i understand behind this but after you turn 50 the ability to build muscle and size and strength becomes far more difficult and deteriorates far more rapidly okay so let's just go with it patty so i said okay fine if 50 is the last bastion of like being just a a bad mf which i want to be right I got to get at it. So I think around age 45 and a half, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to be the biggest, most fit and fastest and most menacing predator of a man that I could be in my 50th year. And that should set the stage of physical fitness and maintaining that for the rest of my life. So I phase in and out of progress here at 47 but I have, I have some fitness goals and um, my business and my life get in the way of that from time to time. But like I was at the gym here. I was late getting to you today for this podcast because I was at the gym. So it's just, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's my goal is to be as big, as menacing looking. It's just what, like the size of this guy who's showing up to the front line of a 5K start at a race and then still run a really fast race. That's where I want to be when I turn 50. I want to be big, muscular, and fast. So that's my that's my goal. Do you have other non-fitness goals for 50 and beyond? Not based on age, no. I do have um, quite a few businesses rattling around in my head where I'm assessing projections of success or or, or, or lack of, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm moving into a world where I'm dabbling in the ideas of collaborating with other business owners or other motivated people. And that would hone in on my culture development. And I would want to make sure I'm in a position where my leadership skills and tactics work. You know, so that's, that's something that I'm, I'm working on developing real good cultural sort of business ideas and collaborations. Yeah. So, I think um, we're going to be wrapping up shortly. Sure. So with that in mind, I have uh, two questions. Sure. The first would be, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? <laughs> the, the best piece of advice I've ever received I think it was by Mustafa Saifi, who was the general manager of the, at the time, the Clarendon Gold's gym. He's my boss. He says, review these financials, figure out a way to get us to hit our sales goal. If you have any questions, come ask me. That's simple. Come ask me. So, and I try to make sure I kind of convey that to people that I work for is, if you don't understand what the vision is, where we're going with this, or why we're doing it, just come ask me. I should be approachable. But, um, and I, I, I can't pinpoint, I can, I can pinpoint advice that I didn't take for sure. That, that's, that's something I could rattle on about. So, hey, whatever you do, get your bookkeeping right early. I know it costs money to pay for a bookkeeper, but you're going to want that. I didn't do that. So I've paid dearly for that ignorance tax. Um, are you sure you need the big new pickup truck? Uh, 
with, with all the bells and whistles and all the buttons, you don't. You know, so those are like lessons learned based on soft, soft sort of uh, recommendations or advice. But I think I think Moose, when he said, "Come ask me," uh, doors open. If you have problems, come ask me. You know, and I think my staff have zero problem asking me. Sometimes they don't want to burden me because they don't they don't busy with other things, but they uh, they can ask me anytime. So I think. Ask, ask the questions is the, uh, and that's the premise of this podcast too, right? I was just going to say, right. and I think um, the my next question was going to be, what advice do you have for people? And I think you've already said it, is to ask. You talked about the um, how you ask questions when you see people. Your podcast is all about asking questions and finding out how things go. You exhibit, have exhibited throughout your life. Um, whether you're asking verbal questions or seeking out how things work in order to move forward, to build things, um, to figure it out. So that part of um, that advice you got from that person when he said, just figure ask. it out yeah, figure and it come ask, ask me. Yeah. So I would have to say, again, congratulations on your 100th episode. And I'm hoping that the listeners have really gotten some insight into who Kevin Brackens is. And yeah, we, we, went, we went deep. Yeah. We've broken down some things. And and so maybe we'll make the 200th episode going more deeply into any of those avenues. I'd love that. But before you before you wrap up on me, I do have advice. I was I was the best advice I got, I would say, is also some advice that someone could take, which is just ask, ask questions. Figure out what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, that sort of thing. But I've run my entire business, all my businesses, on be nice to people. Be nice. Do right by people. Don't rip anybody off. Like, if you do right by people, if you keep your paperwork straight, you don't have to look over your shoulder run your business clean that's it and it's hard to do that sometimes don't rip people off be nice and kind be genuine and deliver what you say you're going to deliver and if you can't communicate why you can't that's my advice so i didn't mean to interrupt you patty but that is the advice i would give anybody is just be nice to people don't rip people off and do what you say you're going to do and you've sort of referred to running a business that way but sounds like great advice to run a life by True. as well. Yeah. So, so we thank you for that. We thank you for who you are and sharing yourself with the world here in the podcast, but <laughs> in your life and how many people that you've impacted, brought together, helped along, um, and have been nice to. So thank you very much. Congratulations on this milestone. And um, I'm not too worried about you turning 50, and I'll look forward to seeing what uh, happens in the next decade. Thanks, Patty. I really appreciate it. Today's conversation was brought to you by Bracken's Painting. You can find information about Bracken's Painting at www.brackenspainting.com for all of your residential and commercial painting needs. Give Bracken's a call.